these first sections, these first seven chapters, there's different literary styles on how narrators tell stories, but the two most common things is the way that a narrator writes the stories is either a serial or what's called episodic narrative. Serial narrative is like when you watch a TV show and it's like to be continued, to be continued, to be continued, to be continued. And if you miss one episode in that, you're completely lost. So it's the idea that the next story is completely dependent upon the previous story in order to make sense of what's happening. Most often, our stories in America are serial. Any, any fictional book you read, any kind of TV show that you watch, most of the time are serial in that kind of sense. Dramas, actions, thrillers, fantasy stories, sci-fi, they're all serial. Every episode is dependent upon the previous. But there's another form, and this is very common in the Hebrew scriptures, is what's called episodic. It's where the first story wraps up with a conclusion and kind of ends and self-contained, and the next story has nothing to be based on that. You can miss the first story and still know what's going on. Now, you may miss a lot of theological points that the narrator's making, but you're not necessarily lost. So if you remember the Abraham story, it's like between each episode, we have no idea how many years passed. They're just icy little things. So this would be more like your sitcom TV shows, where you can miss a whole bunch of sitcoms and you haven't missed anything because it's just the joke of the week for that particular episode. So a lot of times the narrator will go back and forth, and it's just their way of cueing you in on a, a very significant theme. So when it's episodic, it's usually a nice little short moral of the story. When it becomes serial, it's usually they're developing a very long idea and they really want you to track something that's going on. So these first seven chapters are serial narration, meaning that they're all linked to each other, and, and you have to kind of follow and track. And if you jump into chapter 3, you're kind of lost on who Eli and Samuel is and that kind of stuff. What the narrator's doing is that he's intentionally developing serial narration because he's going to specifically, starting tonight, or starting in chapter 2, verse 12, to be more accurate, He's going to be developing a contrast between the house of Samuel and the house of Eli. And that, that requires serial narration. As you see the house of Eli, you see the, well, the house of Samuel is just really just Samuel. There are that contrast, what's called interchange, when it goes back and forth between the two in order to make a point. And the point is that we are entering into a new era, a new era of a leader for a long time. It has been, except for the book of Ruth, it's been incredibly depressing <laughs> in the book of Judges. Jacked up leaders, jacked up people, jacked up culture, and Eli's not presenting any kind of hope for any kind of change. But Samuel is going to change the game. Samuel's going to change. He's not going to be perfect, but he's going to change things. He's going to begin to change the spirit and the culture of things. And so he's going to become like a Boaz in the story, so to speak, a godly, righteous man except where Boaz only had influence in his village, Sam is going to have influence in the entire nation. Why God chooses one man, not another, to have a greater influence or another, I have no idea. But that is just the way it is. The main point here is on the interchange. And what you're going to see is that there's going to be the joy of Samuel's birth in contrast to the destruction of Eli's house. As Eli's life begins to end, because it's judgment, Samuel's will begin to begin and everything's going to change in Israel as a result of that. First Samuel, chapter 1, verse 1. 
There was a man from Ramanathan, Zaphim, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. He was the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zufu, and the Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of the first was Hannah, and the name of the second was Peniah, or Peninah. Now, Peninah had children, but Hannah was childless. Now, the first thing we're introduced to is Elkanah. His name means God created. God created. He has two wives, which is not God's ideal, but it was never strictly forbidden in the law in any kind of a way. Although over time, it's the, the, law, the Bible makes it very clear that's not good, and eventually the culture will move away from that because of that reality. So he has two wives, and immediately, you're gonna, if you've been reading the Bible, you're immediately reminded of past situations like this. One wife can have children, and the other wife can't, like Rachel and Leah. Rachel could, and the other one couldn't, Leah. One wife is favored, Hannah, and the other is not, just like Rachel was favored and Leah was not. And so what you see is this husband, where Jacob favored the woman who could not have kids, so Elkanah is also favoring the wife that cannot have kids. He has two wives, and one is having many, many children, and her name is Penina, and it means fruitful. And Hannah's name means beloved. And so their names fit this thing. He is, we're told he is an Ephraimite. Now, an Ephraimite can either mean that he is from the tribe of Ephraim, or he's from the city of Bethlehem, which is also called Ephrah. And most likely it's because he's from the city of Bethlehem. And he's, and he's an Ephraimite in that sense. This is about 19 miles away from where the temple is. This is important because they're 19 miles away from the temple, and on average, people can usually walk about 25 miles in one day. It's not that they physically can't do more. It's just when you're hauling camels and donkeys and supplies, usually, and you've got women and children, it's about 25 miles a day. So he's, le- he's a little less than a day's journey away from the temple. And, the, the, and that's important to understand because most of the story between them is them going to the temple and coming back, going to the temple and coming back. So it's about a 19-mile journey to get to the temple and back. And Shiloh is where the tabernacle, tabernacle, sorry, not the temple, but the tabernacle is located. So we're immediately introduced to the fact that she's barren and she can't have kids, Hannah. Now, automatically, the way that the narrators introduce this, if you've been reading all those other stories of Sarah and Rachel and Rebecca and, and Manoah's wife, the, the mother of Samson, you're automatically assuming that God is going to give her a child. And even Sarah and Rebecca, or um, yeah, Mary and Rebecca, or I'm just screwing this off. Mary and Elizabeth in the Gospels are going to pick up on that expectation too as God introduces them. So this is their family situation. Now, this is extremely wealthy family. But in some sense, they're wealthy and influential in power because of what he, if you're able to have two wives, you're already wealthy right there. <laughs> Um, to take care of all that and the children that are going to come from that, the multiple journeys he makes to the temple, all that kind of stuff, the amount of food that he gives her, that kind of stuff. But in other cases, as we keep reading the story, we're going to find that the Hannah is very poor in spirit because she's abused and she's mocked. So year after year, the man would go up from his city to worship and to sacrifice to Yahweh of hosts in Shiloh. 
It was there that the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, served as Yahweh's priests. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he used to give meat portions to his wife Peniah and all her sons and daughters. But he would give a double portion to Hannah because he especially loved her. Now Yahweh had not enabled her to have children. Her rival wife used to upset her and make her worry, for Yahweh had not enabled her to have children. Penina would behave this way year after year, and whenever Hannah went up to Yahweh's house, Penina would up be upset with her. Um, Penina would upset her so that she would weep and refuse to eat. Finally, her husband Elkanah said to her, "Hannah, why do you weep and not eat?" Why are you so sad? Am I not better than you? For am I am I not better to you than ten sons? Now what you see is a very interesting family so far. So the one wife who can have kids is mocking Hannah and ridiculing her. Now what you must understand is that first you read this and you think that's messed up. That the husband is favoring Hannah over the other woman. That the other woman has more kids than Hannah, and yet Hannah is getting more food than the other woman. That is favoritism. That is ungodly. That is unbiblical. In fact, that's a direct violation of the Deuteronomic law. The Deuteronomic law made it very clear that if a man has multiple wives, God never said it's okay to have multiple wives. He says if you're going to do it anyways, then do not favor one over the other, or the kids of the wife over the others, which Jacob totally messed that one up. And now Elikon is doing that. Now, what makes this gray is Elikon's name is called God Created. And Elikon goes to the temple on a regular basis. Now, there are three times that you're required to go to the temple by God in Deuteronomy, and this isn't one of them, which means he's doing those three and an additional one, which he doesn't have to do. So he's going over and beyond the law's expectations. Yet he's not perfect. He's violating Deuteronomic law. So we're already introduced to a man who's gray in his character. He seems very godly, but other times you're like, yeah, but that's not right, which is just like us. He's favoring a woman, yet he's making very special extra trips to the tabernacle to worship God and bringing sacrifices to him and all that kind of stuff. So he's favoring Hannah. So at first you immediately want to say Hannah's not good, just like Rachel. The narrator makes a very important attempt to make sure that you don't like Rachel. And that you prefer Leah. And so the, but then the narrator switches it on you and calls Peniah Hannah's rival. Then all of a sudden you're like, okay, wait a minute. The narrator's actually siding with Hannah now. And then we're told about Hannah weeping and crying, which creates sympathy for her. And then when we get to the tabernacle and find out about her prayer, then you realize, wow, this is a really godly woman. So at first you don't want to like her because she's favored. But then you begin to realize that despite that favoritism, it hasn't gone to her head, and she's still a very humble woman. Hannah is going to be portrayed here as an incredibly godly woman who's being favored and given more than anybody else, yet there's an incredibly humble spirit about her. And why is she able to be humbled despite the favoritism? Because of the mocking and the suffering that she's going through. God is using this suffering to keep her humble to keep her spirit gentle. And so in this sense, she's a poor woman. She's poor in spirit. She's being abused. And even though she's loved by her husband more, you also get the sense that he is kind of insensitive and oblivious to her pain. Because 
The only way that anybody finds any worth in the ancient world is kids. And this isn't a sexist thing. This is men and women. If a man and a woman do not have kids, they have no worth in the culture because they have no one to carry their name and their inheritance on after them. They have nobody to take care of them when they become old. They have, and, and all your identity and self-worth is wrapped up in the having children. It seems very insensitive that the entire culture has made you feel completely unworthy. And not only that, if you have no children, you automatically assume the gods have cursed you. And if the gods have cursed you, it's because you've done some horrible sin that they're punishing you for. So everybody around you sees you as some horrible, evil person that the gods are cursing to punish you. And because they're all superstitious, you might be contagious, so we don't want to be around you. So this woman is once, and women really, and, and women especially more than women, and by their nature want children. And they feel that connection. And then, and then there's nothing wrong if that you don't have that a part of you, but that's typically a woman thing. And so this woman has no children, which means she has no purpose or value in the culture at all. Her husband's married to another guy, which makes you automatically question his love. <laughs> Isn't my love good enough for you? Obviously it wasn't because you married her too. And he has his self-worth by the fact that he has kids with the other woman. The culture might be ridiculing her, ostracizing her, and he completely ignores her pain. He completely ignores her suffering and sorrow and just says, aren't I good enough for you? Isn't my love enough? That's kind of insensitive. That's insensitive. Yet he's also a godly man, but not perfect. Not perfect. And so what you see is that Hannah's situation is very bad because one woman is mocking her and taunting her and ridiculing her. The culture has made her feel like she has no purpose or self-worth. She has no children of her own to invest in like everybody else in the family does. And her husband is oblivious to her real pain. She is poor. She is lowly. She is lowly. And that's exactly who God is going to step into. Because God always comes to the ostracized more than he does the powerful. Verse 9. On one occasion in Shiloh, after they had finished eating and drinking, Hannah got up, and now at the time of Eli, the priest was sitting in his chair by the doorpost of Yahweh's temple. Previously, we were introduced to Eli. We're told that he's a priest, and he has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now we're specifically told that Eli is sitting in his chair. Now the word chair here actually means is the word um, for royal throne. <coughs> the word used for the tabernacle actually means palace. And the word for throne is, the chair is the word for throne. So the narrators intentionally set up this idea that Eli is sitting on his throne in his palace. Now automatically that makes you realize something is wrong. Because what, is, what room is he in right now? What house is he in? The tabernacle. Whose palace is the tabernacle really? Yahweh's. Yet Eli is sitting on his throne in his palace. And the narrator is automatically telling you that Eli views himself as a very powerful person. The tabernacle is his tabernacle. He runs the tabernacle. He makes sure what happens and does not happen in the tabernacle. And we're immediately introduced to a priest who we're also going to be told later who's also a judge who sees himself as more powerful than Yahweh. And not that he literally believes that, but he's carrying himself in that kind of a way. 
Nobody in Israel sees themselves more powerful than Yahweh. But the way that he's carrying himself with other people communicates that. And so he's not surrendering to the kingship of Yahweh. And so the, now that you've been told that, the question is, what's going to happen to Eli? Here's a man who's not surrendering to the kingship of Yahweh. He views the tabernacle as his place of power to spread his influence and to gain his own power. And we're going to see that later, how he gains power. And he's sitting in his throne, and this is really God's house. Not only that, he's sitting. If you go back to Deuteronomy and Numbers and Exodus, there's no chair in the tabernacle. There's not supposed to be a chair. The tabernacle is where you work and you serve Yahweh. Yet he's dragged a chair in there so he can sit, which means he's lazy. And he's not doing what God wants him to do as a priest. So he's a lazy, powerful person. Then we're also going to be told later that he's very overweight. Now remember, being overweight is not a comment that God makes in an insensitive way. Today in America, we have multiple reasons why we're overweight. Medicine, depression, biology, all kinds of stuff. You eat more meat in one day than they eat in the entire year. Not only that, their meals consistently grain, fruits, and vegetables, which means you you digest that faster than meat. Not only that, there's very little fat in grain and fruits and vegetables. And only that, they work from sunup to sundown, and they work their rear ends off. Now, many of you in here are very hard workers, and you have a very strong work ethic, but none of you really are on farms. <laughs> Some of you might be construction workers or walk a lot or that kind of stuff, but most of us work in offices. And though you may be a hard worker with a strong work ethic, there's very little time for physical labor and exercise. So you throw on top of that that we eat more meat than most people and we do not as much physical thing, then you add the fact that the only way you could really be overweight in the ancient world is if you're absolutely lazy. And the only way you can survive in the ancient world and be lazy is if other people are feeding you, which means you're abusing your power and using them for your own power and gain. This is seen with Eglon when we talk about Ehud in the book of Judges. And so immediately we're introduced to a man who's like Eglon. He's sitting on his chair in a tabernacle that he's not supposed to be doing because he's supposed to be serving God. He's viewing the house of God as his house. And we're going to find out later that he's gotten very overweight. And the way that he's gotten very overweight is because his sons are corrupted and he's not rebuking them because he's benefiting from their corruption. That's Eli, the judge of Israel. And so all of a sudden you realize, wow, he's like Gideon, he's like Samson, he's like Jephthah. <laughs> and you realize that this is not good. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. And so he's sitting in the house. So she begins to pray. She was very upset as she prayed to Yahweh, verse 10, and was weeping uncontrollably. She made a vow saying, O Yahweh of hosts. Now this Yahweh of hosts that we already saw is the first time this phrase is ever used in the entire Bible. What does Yahweh of hosts mean? Host is an old King James kind of a word that means military army. And the host of Yahweh is the angelic beings or the sons of God that we talked about from the divine council. So once again, go back to the divine council. I told you there was a reason why we did that audio. Um, so the divine council. So this is Yahweh, the commander of his army who are all angelic beings. It's very interesting that we have a very poor woman who wants a kid, and yet the terminology that is keep being used is God, the king of an army. Like, why, why is she see 
Why does a, an everyday normal housewife who has no children constantly love this title, Yahweh the king of an army? Why is that being played out here? From this point on, you're going to see this phrase a lot. This phrase a lot. Remember your female servant, remembering me and not forgetting your servant, and give me a male child to your servant, then I will dedicate him to Yahweh all the days of his life. His hair will never be cut. So she basically says, God, I want a son. I want a son, and if you give me a son, I will dedicate him to the temple to serve you there, and I will never cut his hair. Now two things are happening. First, she's dedicating him as a Nazarite. Now, she doesn't go all the, through all the criteria of a Nazarite, but she doesn't have to because she invokes the symbol of the Nazarite. So if I say, oh, they've got a wedding ring on. I don't have to tell you what marriage means and, oh, they have to do this and be loyal and that stuff. When we hear wedding ring, we already know that that automatically means everything else because the wedding ring is a symbol of that. So when she says haircut, this does two things. First, it takes you back to Numbers chapter 6 where the Nazarite vow is introduced. Remember, the Nazarite vow was somebody who wanted to serve God on an extra level of holiness than everyday normal people. They were not allowed to drink anything from the vine, no alcohol, not even grape juice, which didn't exist in the ancient world, anything from honey, anything that could be fermented. They're not allowed to touch dead bodies ever, and they, had to, they were never allowed to cut their hair. And the hair not being cut was a sign, like the wedding ring, that they were dedicated to God. And they were going to serve God in a more special way than everybody else did. And that was their own choice. God didn't make you do that. That was just somebody who says, I want to do that. Now, the first Nazarite that we're introduced to in the Bible is Samson. Automatically, we can see parallels here. What is interesting, she's dedicating her son as a Nazarite, meaning I'm going to specially dedicate him to serve you, God, in a special way than anybody else in Israel does. But she's also dedicating him to be in the tabernacle and to serve in the tabernacle. The problem with this is, who's the only people allowed to serve in the tabernacle? The Levites, the priests. The question is, is he a Levite? Nowhere in the book of Samuel is he ever said to be a Levite, Elikana, until you get to 1 Chronicles chapter 6. In 1 Chronicles chapter 6, as you go through the genealogy of Elikana, you find out he's a Levite. And this explains now why she can dedicate him to the tabernacle. See, a Nazarite, you didn't have to be a Levite to be a Nazarite, but you don't have to serve in the tabernacle to be a Nazarite. So she's dedicating him on two different levels. On one level, she's saying, my son will be a priest, which he has the right to be that because he's a Levite. But at the same time, he's also going to be a Nazarite, which means this is like double holiness. Well, this is actually triple holiness because Israel was supposed to be holy to begin with. A priest was even more holy, and Nazarite was even more holy, and she's combining all together. I'm going to dedicate my son to an extra level of holiness that nobody's been dedicated before. <laughs> if you give me a son, I will put him in the tabernacle to serve you the rest of my, his life. That's incredible. Now, the Bible never forbids vows, but the Bible does hold you to vows. Very importantly. And so this is her faith. Now, automatically, you see differences between Samson's mother. Now, remember, this is important because Samson is about ready to become a judge at the time that Samuel is being born. We're seeing Samson. Remember, Samson's mother is visited by an angel, and the angel says, you're going to have a child. Hannah doesn't get visited by an angel. She pursues God. 
And God doesn't tell her he's to be a Nazarite. Hannah says, I'll dedicate him as a Nazarite. Manoah's wife, when finds out this stuff, she's like, well, I guess it was God. I don't know. It might have been an angel or something else. Hannah knows exactly who she's talking to because she uses the name Yahweh in his own tabernacle. And not only that, Manoah's wife, when Samson's born, will name him after the sun god, Samson, and he will, she never communicates his purpose ever in his life to him. And he grows up to be a ding-dong. Whereas Hannah will take her son and bring him to tabernacle, tell him exactly what his purpose is, and Samson will become an incredibly godly man. And what's interesting is Samson's purpose is to begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And Samson never does that. Samuel will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The narrator is intentionally contrasting the two. That Manoah's wife's name is never mentioned because she is visited by God, told that she's going to have a child even though she's barren. He's being Nazarite. His purpose is to deliver Israel. And she has no idea who God is, doesn't follow through on anything, doesn't communicate his purpose, and he grows up to be a scumbag. Where Hannah is the one pursuing and seeking God. She goes to the tabernacle. She cries out to God with all of her being. She doesn't complain to her fellow female friends. She doesn't get bitter and anger. She doesn't lash out on her fellow sister wife, whatever you call that. She takes all of her frustration, anger, and sorrow and brings it to God and lays at his feet. Even when the priest is a horrible example of godliness, she prays out to God, gives it to him, dedicates her child to him, pursues him, follows throughs on her vow, and raises Samuel to be this godly man who actually accomplishes his purpose in life. And that's why Hannah is a great, incredible, humble woman of God. Because in a time period where nobody is doing that, in a time period where judges ends with women being abused, and Samuel begins with Hannah being abused, despite all that, Hannah comes out as this incredible woman of God. And then when she writes her song, it's like one of the most amazing songs that she writes. And so she faithfully goes and prays to God for this to happen. 